Watching what's unfolding in the Middle East church is very important. We want to stay abreast of what's happening. Be praying for Israel. Be praying for the people of Gaza. Be praying just for our world. And uh, just maybe mention a couple things. On the 27th, the, uh, the UN General Assembly uh, gathered. I think the UN's got like 193 nations that are a part of it. And they, they gathered to uh, vote and do a condemnation on the attack of Hamas that happened on October 7th against uh, the nation of Israel. And the desire was that, you know, by the nations acknowledging that it was a terrorist attack, um, that that would give them clout with Israel to negotiate some level of peace agreement and to stem the tide of the Israelis' actions against uh, the Palestinians, against Hamas. And so for that to happen, uh, the UN had to have a two-thirds vote, two-thirds in favor, two-thirds of the nation in favor of calling that attack by Hamas a terrorist action. And so the member states uh, voted to acknowledge that, uh, but they couldn't secure a vote. They could not get two-thirds of the nations to agree that that was a terrorist attack. And um, when the vote failed... Uh, there was applause and cheering in the UN. And, uh, and then the UN had a second vote that the Jordanians brought forward uh, that did not acknowledge Hamas, but urged for an immediate uh, ceasefire. And that passed 120 nations voted for that, uh, 14 against. Canada abstained, as did a lot of Western nations, which is, you know... There's no, there's no lukewarm choices, is there, in this life? And so, you know, what's happening? The world's with Palestine, right? The world, the world is with the Palestinians. It's not with Israel. Um, when the Palestinian ambassador spoke to the, to the UN, his speech was uh, concluded with a big applause. Um, and when the Israeli ambassador spoke, there was dead silence, even when he showed pictures of what had happened to their people at the end of the speech. And so there's lots of amazing stuff happening in the world. And, um, you know, the, the Turkish leader Erdogan has threatened to declare war against Israel if the action doesn't stop, that he'll send Turkish troops into Gaza. And so why does all this matter? Why, do, why am I mentioning this? What, what's, what's going on here that we want to be aware of? Well, I want to just remind you this. We believe this is a church. Maybe you don't know this if you're a new believer or you've never kicked around the church or you're just watching with us online, but we believe the existence of Israel is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Amen. That the word of God teaches that, declares that, that God made a covenant with the descendants of Abraham. And I think this matters, you know, in, in, uh, when, on Wednesday nights, we're working our way through the book of Genesis. And last Wednesday night, we saw three things in the book of Genesis that God created in the beginning. Time, space, and matter. And time, time is a creation of God. He made time. And he did this. He set the sun in the sky and the moon at night to help us understand a 24-hour cycle, right? And, and he gave us the stars. And we know this, that, that the earth rotates around the sun and that we have 12, 12 months and there's seasons and weather's weather changes and God set these things in the heavens to tell us the time because time matters to us and amongst the nations God has a timepiece, uh, something that he has set in place so that the nations of the world the peoples of the world those who fear him would know the time in which they live and Israel's the timepiece. Jerusalem is the timepiece, and so we're not surprised by these things. The word of God tells us that all of the nations are going to turn against the people of Israel. And, and we have to go, well, what, what would cause that to happen? Well, look what's happening before our eyes. And so we need to be uh, in prayer. The Lord's going to save Israel. Even when all the nations turn against them. Word of God prophesies that. And so we need to be praying. We need to be praying for people, again, that are caught in the crosshairs. We need to be praying for um, justice. We need to be praying for peace. And, uh, and so can we do that this morning? And we'll pray for our time in God's word too. Lord, we just come before you and these are wild days in which we live. 
They're exciting in one sense because, Jesus, we are looking forward to your coming, your soon return. And, Lord, they're terrifying in another sense because there's so much upheaval. There's so much hurt. There's so much pain. And, God, we're just praying that your spirit would move across the face of the earth, Lord. That you would move in the land of Israel. That you would move amongst the Gazan, the Gazans, Lord. That hearts and minds would be turned towards you. Because Jesus, you are the Prince of Peace. And outside of you, there's, there is no peace. Peace doesn't come at the end of a rifle. Or by the actions of a terrorist. Peace comes from the Prince of Peace. And so Jesus, we're praying that you would come into that situation. We're praying, Jesus, that your kingdom and your glory and your salvation story would be made known. We pray, God, that you would, you would work in the midst of this and that we, your church, would not be unawares of the day in which we live. Lord, you've set timepieces for your people to know what time it is. And so, Lord, may we be awake. May we be in prayer. May we be uh, watching and waiting for your soon and coming return. And so, Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. We pray for the nation of Israel, Lord. Would you bless them? Because your word says that those who bless them are blessed and those who curse them are cursed. And so, Father, we bless them in the name of Jesus, praying, God, that they would come to faith in you. We also pray for those Gazan people, Lord, that they would come to faith in you. You're the answer, Jesus. And so we look unto you this morning. I pray, God, that as we spend time together in your word, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word, the word of God, does the work of God. And so, Lord, we're praying that your word would do a, trans a transformation in our own hearts and lives this morning as we uh, consider these things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, right on. We're in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to crack into there. Going to try and knock this off in five weeks, okay? Five, five chapters in five weeks. And um, we'll make our way through here. Um, so I guess it's important whenever you come to a new book, you kind of got to set the table for what's going on. Like, I think about a good meal. Uh, you got to set the table in regards to having something to eat. And I think it's important to do that with regards to the books of the Bible too. And so Thessalonians is a, is a great little letter. And to do it, to do that, to understand it, you need some history from the book of Acts. So I'm going to get you to take your Bible, keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians, and turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. All right. Acts chapter 15, at the end of Acts chapter 15, it tells us about Paul launching out on his second missionary uh, journey. And so Paul set out with a man by the name of Silas. I'll get you to chuck that map up for us there, Calvin. We've got a map of Paul's second missionary journey. He set out with this man from, named Silas, and they left from Syrian Antioch, which is all the way over on the right side of the screen, just, just north of modern Lebanon today. And that was uh, Paul's hometown, home, home community that he was a part of. That was his home church there in Antioch. And uh, they made a plan that they would go off and they would visit the churches from his first missionary journey so that he could deliver to them the decision from the council that had happened in Jerusalem. And Acts chapter 15 tells us about this. Remember, Paul got sent with a delegation of leaders from this church in Antioch to go down to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles there and clarify with them some questions about salvation. Like when a Gentile comes to faith in the Lord Jesus, does he need to become Jewish? What laws do we need to apply to this person's life? And so Paul went down there to discover that, to have that meeting with the apostles, and they came to this very important decision that that Gentiles were saved by faith through grace. And Paul was given just a simple instruction. Tell them to abstain from sexual immorality and to, from eating meat with blood in it. And they were to go and uh, preach the message of the gospel of grace. And so Paul is given this decision and he makes the choice to head out and to go and do that. And you recall, I'll just remind you, he was going to go with his old buddy Barnabas. And Barnabas said, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul said, 
That kid's not coming on this trip with us. And they got into a disagreement and they parted and they went separate ways. And so Paul uh, heads out to tell these churches that they've planted on his first missionary journey, the decision of the apostles from Acts chapter 15. And he invites Silas to join him. They head out on the journey. While they, they head out, they're, they're going counterclockwise up through Galatia there. And uh, they head out. They meet a young man by the name of Timothy in one of the churches. And Paul invites Timothy to join his missionary team. And you know, Timothy becomes his, his son in the faith, his young protege. And after Timothy joined Paul and Silas, they decided that they would uh, continue moving on. And uh, when they made their plan, the Lord stopped them. They thought, well, let's head down to the southern part of Turkey down, down near the bottom above, just above Cyprus here. And the Lord told them no. So they said, okay, we'll, we'll turn north. We'll head up to the northern regions of Galatia, kind of towards Istanbul. And the Lord told them, no, you're not going there. And then Paul had a dream. And in his dream, the Lord spoke to him. And this man invited him to come uh, to Macedonia, to head east. And uh, urged him, this man in the dream, appealed to him, come and preach the gospel to us. In fact, check it out in Acts chapter 16. If you got your Bibles, Acts chapter 16, verse 6. It says this, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this is exciting. Paul stopped twice in two different directions, and then the Lord speaks to him through a dream, and he's called to head east, to head to Macedonia. And uh, so they traveled in that direction, and uh, they crossed from the continent of Asia into Europe for the first time. This is exciting. The gospel is moving into a new continent. Okay, this is what's happening in the second missionary effort, this journey. Uh, the first organized team going to Europe on a missions trip. And there, Paul went and he preached in three cities that are in the top there that you uh, can see on the map. Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Okay, this is Acts chapter 16 and 17. In Philippi, there Paul, they met success. And what happened? He got arrested. He got put in jail. And the Lord came and met them there in jail. The Philippian jailer gets saved. And then they have to leave Philippi because of persecution. They go on to Thessalonica where many believe, but again, persecution rises up. Paul has to leave. He leaves Timothy behind to manage this new group of believers. And he goes on to Berea. And there in Berea, the people receive the word of God with eagerness. The scripture tells us daily they examined the scriptures to see if the things that they were being taught were true. And again, Paul has to leave there. Like everywhere else, it's like trouble follows him as he preaches the gospel. Everywhere he seemed to minister, Paul was forced to leave because of authorities or because of persecution. And so in terms of Thessalonica, Paul didn't spend a lot of time there. The text tells us he was ministering in, in the synagogue over three Sabbaths. And finally, he couldn't minister in the synagogue anymore. So he just began to minister outside of that. So he maybe was there for, I don't know, four weeks, a month, maybe three months before he was forced to leave. And his custom was this. Like when Paul would go to any one of these cities, Thessalonica was a big city, 200,000 people living there. And so there was a Jewish population for a, a Jewish synagogue to gather. You needed 10 Jewish men. And so he would go into that city. He would find uh, the synagogue uh, and he would minister there. He would proclaim Christ to the Jews because they had the scripture. He could teach to them from the Old Testament. And there he would always find God-fearing Gentiles and they would get saved. Jews would come to faith and then Paul would get chased out of the city. You know, something would happen. So after ministering there, he, he goes to Berea 
He goes down south to Athens and then uh, to Corinth. And he planted a church in Corinth. And it's while he is in Corinth that he writes this letter for the Thessalonians. Okay, so this is the background. And so 1 Thessalonians is counted amongst Paul's earliest writings. Probably only the book of Galatians predates this writing to the Thessalonian church. And it was written around the year 51, maybe 52. Uh, two years after he planted the church. And what's amazing, because it's like, it's less than 20 years after the ministry of Jesus. Like, if Jesus was crucified in 33, this is 51. It's like 18 years after. We see just the proximity to the gospel message. And so this church to whom Paul is writing is young. Um, a newer church plant. And they're living in perilous times. They're living in a world that's hostile to the gospel message. In fact, in Thessalonica, they were experiencing persecution. We're going to see this as we uh, move through this letter in the weeks to come. They were living in a culture not unlike ours where there was, you know, a rising tide of culture against those who follow Christ. Those who would proclaim salvation in the one true living God through his son, Jesus. And so, you know, I was thinking about that. It's like, it's not unlike our time in some ways. And you know, we sense the world's, world's on the brink of a big crisis here, isn't it? If we wouldn't call it already that, what's going on? There's wars. And there's rumors of wars. You know, we sense in our culture growing intolerance to those who profess faith in Christ and prescribed to a biblical worldview. Some, some would look around the world, they would say, eh, you know, the biggest obstacle to peace in the world is probably Israel. Others might say, eh, you know, maybe it's the church. As Christians, we look around the world and we would say this, the biggest problem that humanity faces is humanity itself. It's like in the hearts of men, right? I mean, that's what the word of God teaches us. From the perspective of the Bible, we understand that. We understand that the heart of humanity, as Jeremiah said, is deceitful above all things and beyond cure who can understand it, Jeremiah 17.9. But the world around us holds to the belief that humanity is essentially good and that the world is blighted by those who are not for peace, those who are intolerant or oppressive, that the true problem in the world is intolerance. You know, those who won't live according to the values of what culture says. And you know who falls into this category, church? God's people. God's people because we have the Bible. And the Bible teaches us about God and his love for us in Christ Jesus. The Bible teaches us the truth about humanity and the nature of sin and the need for salvation. The Bible teaches us the commands and instructions and precepts of God so that we might understand how to come into his presence because he's holy. The Bible teaches us about morality and holiness and God's grace. And you have to understand that biblical morality and holiness is not so much about man. It's about God. It's about God. And God desires to dwell with people. God desires that people can come into his presence. God desires to make his love known and his salvation known. God wants nothing more than to be present with his creation. And he's holy. He's a holy God. And so he gave his people his word so that they could be with him. So that they could come into the presence of a holy God. And God is not willing that any should perish. That's what the word of God tells us. But that all would come to repentance. The living God is a God of love, is he not? God is love. And he gave us his word so that we would know how to relate to him. So that he could have relationship with us. So that we could, so that he could grace us with his presence. But in the eyes of the world... Those who would hold to a Christian biblical worldview and ethic are often seen as intolerant, aren't they? The reality is, in lots of ways, 
the church and the Christian is a stench in the nostrils of culture because we represent to them intolerance. But what we are, the word of God says, is the fragrance of God. Ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the very glory of the message of the gospel is, the, is that the gospel changes lives. Jesus transforms lives. The Lord searches our heart. And when we surrender to his love and surrender to the love of God in Christ Jesus and repent of our sin, the word of God says that we are made new creations. We've been given a new heart and a new mind. In Thessalonica, men and women had found the gospel of Jesus Christ and it changed their lives. That's what we're about to read here. They were transformed. They were changed. They had undergone a spiritual metamorphosis. They had been born again, not born of the flesh, born of the spirit. And the gospel had had a very powerful effect on Thessalonica. This is a great letter because Paul doesn't have, you know, false teachings that he's dealing with here. This is a healthy church we're going to see. I mean, there's some things out of order. He needs to address it. He's got to get some doctrine right here. But this is a good group of people. The story of their faith had spread far and wide. We're going to read that. That, the, that their reputation had gone throughout Greece. This was a, a people who had been transformed by Jesus Christ. And as that testimony began to shine like a, a bright light in a dark room, so did the persecution for this group of people. They were facing persecution. And so not far from recently planting this church, Paul's in Corinth, and he gets the report from Timothy, what's going on. And he writes this letter to encourage these followers of Christ. So check it out. Verse 1, it says this. Paul, Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Silas, mentioned him earlier that he's on this trip with with Paul. Uh, Silas had been a guy who worked actually with, he eventually worked with both Peter and with Paul. Uh, he penned, Silas penned the, le the letter First Peter. He wrote that down for Peter. And so he was a regular ministry companion of Paul. Of course, Timothy, we know that's Paul's young protege. It's his son in the faith. And in fact, the very first assignment Paul ever gave to Timothy was that when Paul left Thessalonica, he, he left Timothy behind to be in charge of things and all that was going on there. And so this letter is in response to what Timothy reports back to Paul. So again, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I like this because I was thinking about this. In God the Father. You know, you have an address. I have an address, 344 Camellia Way. You know, we could go around the room. You're all going to rip off your address to me. You have an address, a physical location where you live, a home in which you live. But did you know you have another address? A spiritual one. That if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you, have a, you have a geographical, physical address at which you live, but you have a spiritual address if you're in Christ. Now check out verse 2. He said this. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says this. Man, we pray for you guys. We give thanks for you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Not because you're perfect, you know. You're not, it's, not, it's not that. It's, he, he, he gave thanks to them because of the work that God had done in them that was so, so apparent. This crew had some issues, but Paul gave thanks because there was an undeniable work of the Holy Spirit that had happened in their hearts and their lives, a marvelous change. And so what did Paul got, thank God for? What came to his mind when he considered the Thessalonians? Well, three things he tells us. I want to point them out to you. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in Christ Jesus. 
You know, salvation will change your life. That's when you know something is real in someone's life, that they've experienced true salvation. There will be a marked difference. Their life will change. Salvation is not about, you know, moral behavioral modification. It's about an internal transformation by the Spirit of God. Where you repent of sin, you turn from it, and you turn in faith to Christ Jesus. And when you turn in faith to Christ Jesus, there are things that will accompany that. 100%, it has to show up if, if salvation is real. There will be peace. There will be joy. There will be hope. There will be a sense of the love of God. There will be a sense of forgiveness. And the internal transformation will begin to work from the inside to the outside. And holiness will begin to be produced in your life. Desires and appetites change because you will be the temple of the Holy Spirit when you put your trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a maturing church here, as we see in the Thessalonians, or a maturing believer will demonstrate these things that Paul saw in the Thessalonians. Not that they were perfect. Not that they were perfectly mature. But these things were being produced in them. A, a work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in Christ Jesus. Faith, hope, and love. It's actually the first time it's ever seen in the scriptures. This is the first time right here. And Paul puts them together. These three virtues. The cardinal virtues of the Christian life. And they're the greatest evidence of salvation. So the work of faith. What's the work of faith? I think about John chapter 6, when some people came to Jesus and they said to him, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus answered them. He said, the work of God is this, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They said works plural. He said, no, no, actually, the work is singular. There's one work. It's a work of faith, that you believe in him whom the Father has sent. Faith is the work that Jesus requires of us, church. Faith. And when a church says we believe in Jesus Christ and we trust in the work of Jesus accomplished on the cross by his cross and resurrection, it is doing a church, the people of God are doing the singular work that God requires. Works do not save us. We, we preach this often in our church. Faith plus works do not save us. The message of the gospel is a message of faith alone. And a faith that saves, we find out, will be a faith that works. It will produce works. Think of it this way. If the Thessalonians professed faith in Jesus but continued to bow down to their idols, they would have proved that they were not amongst those chosen by God. But what was the report regarding this church? It's found in verse 9. They turned from dead idols to the living God. That word turned in verse 9 expresses the idea of not just turning, but of a, of a conversion, a transformation. The work of faith will always bring a real change, a transformation to your life, just like it did for the Thessalonians. You know, as you place your own life on the scale of God's word. A question that's good to ask yourself is this. Did my faith in Christ actually result in a transformation? Did faith in Christ Jesus change me or did I just modify my behavior? A true experience with Christ will transform you. I'm going to talk about that. I had such a great experience with someone this week. I was like, wow, that was amazing tell you about it in a few minutes. The second thing Paul speaks about is a, a labor of love. The mature church will labor in love. We love because Christ first loved us. The direction of that love is not just vertical. It begins vertical and then it goes horizontal, doesn't it? It's love God and then we love others. That's the direction of our love. And because Christ first loved us, we therefore love 
And there is a vertical expression of that love and there is a horizontal expression of that love towards people, towards God and towards people. And Jesus taught that if you love God, love for God will express itself in obedience to his commands. John chapter 14, verse 15, he said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, Jesus said this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and manifest or show myself to him. When we love God, the keeping of his commandments is not something that is burdensome. It is something that becomes a privilege. It becomes something that more and more we want to do. More and more, Lord, I want to obey your word because I love you. We want to be obedient, not because we fear the punishment of God, but because we love the presence of God. And the commands are about his presence being with us. Remember that the commands are not rules. They're about his presence. What allows a holy God to be present with people? And the commands teach us the structure which allow God to be with us. God said this to his people, be holy because I am holy. And none of us can perfectly keep the commandments. That's why the cross is necessary. That's why it's necessary that we put our faith and trust in Jesus. We are dependent upon grace. We are dependent upon the blood of Jesus to cleanse us of every sin. Nothing but the blood, but the expression of our love is obedience to Jesus and his word. The expression of our love for God towards other people is that we love them by being obedient to the commands that God gave us. You know, think about those things. We love God by fighting for justice. We love God by caring for the widow. We love God by caring for the orphan. We love God by loving our neighbors as ourselves. We love God by the expression of our compassion for the oppressed and the exploited. The work of faith and the labor of love are signs of, of genuine faith and a mature church. And so is, he gives one more thing, the steadfastness of hope. Throughout both of the letters to the Thessalonians, um, one of the themes that you're going to see pop out here in the weeks to come is the return of Jesus. It's a very dominant theme. And I think it's timely we're going through this together. You know, it's healthy, it's normal, and it is a, a, a sign of maturity to desire Christ to come. Let me say that again. It is healthy, it is normal, and it is mature to desire Christ to come again. So Paul is going to teach this church how to live with that longing. Living with a heavenly perspective is to live with the big picture in mind. And Paul says that hope will produce in you a steadfastness. This is important. The hope actually produces something. It produces keeping you on track. It produces steadfastness, patience. It's the endurance that you need when you are going through tough times. Okay? It's the hope of the eternal victory of Jesus and our participation in that because he's our king and our Lord. And those who don't know Jesus, they don't know what it's like to have the hope of heaven. They don't know what it's like to have the hope of, that produces steadfastness. In fact, when Christ comes for his church and we're raptured, which we're going to learn about, 1 Thessalonians 4, the world is going to be shocked when the church is gone. They're going to be surprised because they don't hold to the hope that the believer has. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul said this, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance through the, and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Paul says you need to be instructed by the word of God because the word of God will produce in you endurance and encouragement so that you hang on to hope in the midst of the days in which you live. So there you have it, Paul, faith, hope, and love. The work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope, 
No wonder Paul was thankful for this church because the church was displaying these things. Check out verse 4. He says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Thinking about that. Um, because Paul starts to speak here of God choosing them, electing them for salvation. I was thinking about those days, you know, back in elementary school where they'd line you up on the wall. Remember that in PE class? And then they say, okay, that guy's the captain, that guy's the captain. Pick your team. And you're like, please, not last. Any place but last. Any place but last. And you're like, if you got chosen in some spot that was, you know, a good spot, you're like, okay, I can be, you know, a little confident in whatever, whatever, you know. It's a tough experience, though, if you're the last one chosen, isn't it? We all had those. But it's such a good experience when you're chosen and someone says, I, I want you. You know, maybe even in a job situation, right? Or, or your spouse or some team. How awesome it is to be chosen. And what we find out here is this. God chose us, Paul says. He chose you. Some translations say he elected you. He elected you to be part of the church. The word church in Greek is ekklesia. And ekklesia literally means this, the called out ones. Those chosen. Called out from amidst the others. God has chosen you. He's elected you. And in this passage, so far we see some, some simple truths about, about election and about salvation and God's choosing of you. Let me point out a few of them. First one is this. Salvation begins with God. Begins with God. Jesus said it this way in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That's about election. Choice. In fact, God chose us. And the scripture tells us this, that he did so before he laid the foundation of the world. How's that for crazy? Chose you before he laid the foundation of this world. That shows you what's important to God, doesn't it? This relationship that we have with God, it's something that he initiated. It was in him, not you. It was in him. For some, it, it felt like you stumbled into this God thing, but you didn't. There's no accidents with God. He chose you. He was drawing you. He picked you. He's the team captain. You just lined up on the wall. He picked you out. Others might not have chosen you. But he did. So I'll take that one. And that one. And that one. We might ask, Lord, do you know what I am? Do you know what you're doing? Lord, do you know how messed I am? What Paul is telling us here is this. That salvation begins with him. He chose. He elected. And this salvation, Paul says, involved his love for you. Paul calls them brothers loved by God. He says brothers loved by God, chosen by him. See, part of the choice that God made in selecting you was to make you an object of his love. That's not something that can be earned or worked for or deserved. His love is just something to be enjoyed. I mean... Let me ask you this question. What do you, what do you just delight in? What do you take joy and pleasure in? What do you love? God loves you. He delights in you. I don't know if there's anything in this world that is as assuring and, and delightful to the, to the human heart as to experience the love of God and to be assured of it. Paul also tells us this, okay, so salvation involves his election, it involves his love, and it involves your faith. Salvation involves faith. You're saved by grace through faith. And again, this is the one thing that God requires from you in all of this. One thing. What are the works of God? They're singular. There's one thing God's asking of you. That you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
Also interesting here is you'll see this. If I, I didn't point it out, but if you go back, I encourage you, go back and look at this. Salvation involves the Trinity. Did you notice that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all mentioned in this work? Those four verses that we've read so far. They've all been mentioned. One God existing in three persons. It's been said, as far as God the Father is concerned, I was chosen before the foundations of the earth was laid. As far as the Son is concerned, I was chosen when Jesus died for me on the cross. And as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, I was saved the moment I repented of sin and turned in faith to Christ Jesus. And he came and indwelled me with his presence. D.L. Moody, that famous evangelist, said this. I'm glad he chose me before I was born. Because I don't think he would have chosen me after I'd done some living. <laughs> Amen? Aren't you glad God chose you before you were born? And then Paul says one more thing about this salvation. He says it'll change your life. Salvation results in a change. We've seen that in the story of the Thessalonians. I hope when you look at your own life, you, you say this, it's very evident. I, I mean, I didn't do it, but there's been a transformation. God's done this work in me. So let me ask you this. How do you know God's chosen you? There were definite signs that Paul could see. He could see them. These are signs that this is the elect of God. Charles Spurgeon spoke about this passage and he found four evidences of election. Let me point them out to you. He said this, the word of God coming in power. The reception of God's word with much assurance. That means believing in that which you've heard. The desire to be like Jesus. Paul said to these guys, you, you became followers of of us and of the Lord. They started to imitate Paul. And fourthly Spurgeon said this. The existence of a spiritual joy in their service to God. They had much affliction but they had much joy. The gospel came to them in word. That's what Romans chapter 10 verse 17 tells us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God church. By the word of Christ. The gospel came to them in power. See, the gospel is more than just words. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who would believe. You might want to associate what Paul is saying with the miraculous when we speak of power. And it's true that there can be power present to work for the working of miracles when the gospel is preached. But that's not really the emphasis. The, the emphasis is this, that the gospel itself is the power of God for salvation. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And what happens when the gospel is preached is that there is a power present. It's made manifest. And for that matter, you know, it's a, it's a miracle when a sinful, rebellious person is moved by the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus, and they respond in repentance and faith. Salvation's a miracle. The gospel has power to compel us because it's not, it's not myth or legend. Jesus lived and the gospel message is true and real. And Paul says the gospel came to you with the Holy Spirit. See, whenever someone responds to the gospel, it's because of the working of the Holy Spirit. He's convicting in regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And for those who respond to the message of Christ, the Spirit comes and indwells them and they become a temple of the living God and the Spirit enables them to make choices for God to live the life of the Spirit instead of a life controlled by the flesh. Paul knew with confidence the Holy Spirit was working amongst the Thessalonians. It's amazing. And he says this about them, the gospel came to you with full conviction. In other words, with much assurance. That sense of confidence in the work of God and their salvation experience. Their will was moved. I, I told you I was going to tell you a story. I mean, this week, I, I just, I was with a group of people and I was hanging out visiting with someone there. And I was so blessed. Because I remember when they came to Christ. 
And I remember the deep struggles they had and the stuff that was going on. They had to break free from addiction. But this week I listened in awe as, I, as they spoke with absolute confident assurance about the work of God. And I'm like, wow, this person's amazing. I'm like sitting here and I'm like being inspired by their confidence and assurance in the gospel. I'm thinking, wow, hopefully I can grow up to be like them. I'm like, what is going on here? I was taken aback by their assurance with which they spoke. Jesus wants you to have that. You know that? He wants you to be assured of your salvation. Confident in him. In him. And he says this, here I am, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and eat with me. Let me ask you today, you know, like, if you died today, would you know that you're going to heaven? Would you know? If you died and you met Jesus, and he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? My heaven. What would you say? You know, there was a time in my own life where I, I, I tell you, if you had asked me if I had full assurance, I would say, not a chance, man. I'm, I don't know. But it's something that you can square away with the Lord. As you grow in your knowledge of the gospel and you learn to hold to the promises of God by faith. That verse that you hear us repeat over and over and over and over again in this church. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. If you don't know you need to square that with the Lord. Why would you leave that unanswered? Look at verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction. With joy of the Holy Spirit. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Acacia. This is amazing, man. Paul's got, this is a church that Paul does not have bad stuff to say about. You know, Paul said elsewhere, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me. Imitate me. But it's a, a principle of spiritual growth and discipleship in the kingdom of God. Find someone Find someone whose relationship with Christ you admire and pattern your life after their spiritual practices. Learn. Be a disciple. The Thessalonians, uh, we're going to read here in verse 9, turned from their idols to the living God and, and they angered their family and friends. They angered their community by the transformation that was happening in their life. They faced affliction, we read here. Persecution. Because of their newfound faith in Christ, they suffered for the message of the gospel. But what happened? By the Spirit of God, they were given joy in the midst of the affliction. In the midst of their suffering, they became an example for others. Amazing. You know, faith is always tested, right? They say this, faith that isn't tested can't be trusted. It's a good, it's a good line. Faith that isn't tested can't be trusted. And one of the one of the tests that God uses for your faith is persecution, affliction, suffering. And it is mature to look at persecution, affliction, and suffering as coming from the Lord. And when that happens, joy comes in the midst of the trial because you know God is teaching me to trust him. He's not trying to take me out here. He's teaching me to learn to trust him. That he'll be faithful no matter what happens. And so suffering, affliction, and persecution that the church faced, what was happening? God was training them to trust Jesus. It's like the early church. You know, when the early church suffered, we read this in the early part of 
the book of Acts, what happened? Peter and John, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy of suffering for the name. The Thessalonians, I think this is about them. They, they stopped complaining and they started rejoicing because they saw God at work in their trials. Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone, gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul's like, I got no correction to make. I mean, it's amazing, you guys. Your testimony, it's going everywhere. Tell you something I read this week statistically 70 to 80 percent of church growth is the result of friends witnessing to friends, a family witnessing to family. All other methods of church program, you know, evangelism, whatever, outreaches, this, that, that kind of fills up the gap. But you know, you know, the greatest way that this church body is going to reach this community is through you. <laughs> won't be the kids program, won't be the live stream, won't, won't be those things. Those ministries will have fruit, but the greatest fruit will come from you living and speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ to your family and friends, your coworkers. So I would encourage you, invite people to this body. Invite people to church. Nobody ever gets mad at me when I invite them to church. I'm always kind of surprised. I'm always like, oh, I'm terrified. And then I invite them and then they're like, oh, thanks, man. <laughs> Not that they always come. But they always seem thankful for the invitation and the open door. Your personal contact in the community will bring greater harvest than any program we could ever run. So I challenge, I challenge you, church. This week, invite somebody. Make it your goal heard that before. I've said it before. I haven't said it for a long time. You know, next week you bring two things with you. Bible in one hand and a friend in another. Because <laughs> you're the greatest evangelism resource the body has. And you're ambassadors for Christ. Let's finish off here. Verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. Jesus. Who delivers us from the wrath to come. You might want to write, underline that right there. Delivers us from what? A wrath to come. The wrath to come. So did you turn from your idols? And you turn to the living God. You know, I always think in our culture, I'm like, man, where are the idols? Like, how do you identify the idols? Sometimes I feel like when you look at other cultures, it's like, well, that's obvious. Look at the idol there and the idol there. But, you know, it's like the biggest blind spot is our own lives, our own culture so often. It's always like this rule. How do you expose idols? You look at what you fear. Follow your fears to your idols. Your fears will expose to you that which you hold in idolatry. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's what the word of God tells us. And so follow your fears to your idols and repent. You know, every chapter in 1 Thessalonians, the chapter ends with a reference to the coming of Jesus. It's kind of cool. You might want to check it out. Be looking ahead. You know, obviously, as we read about the Thessalonian church, they're, they're, I wouldn't be so foolish to think that they're perfect, but they've got a lot going for them. They're a good model for us. And they were a people who lived with an expectancy regarding the coming of Christ. That's what Paul says. You know, God has a special plan to deliver his church from wrath. That's what's alluded to here. Jesus will deliver us from the wrath that is to come. There's a wrath coming. There's wrath coming. And we believe the way that God is going to deliver his church is to rapture us. To remove us. When the Bible speaks of the Lord's return, we need to distinguish. I would say that there's two parts to that coming First part is this, Jesus will come in the air for his church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. 
And that will usher in a period of tribulation on earth when the church is removed, a time of God's wrath. In the Old Testament, it's called the day of the Lord. It's a time when God will bring judgment to the earth. And Jesus described this time as a time of great tribulation that has not been since the beginning of the world till now. And the distinctive nature of this tribulation is this. This is important. The distinctive nature of this tribulation is that it's not men bringing tribulation on men. Got to understand this. It's God bringing wrath on men. The great tribulation is a time when the trouble is the judgments of God that will rain down on earth. And we learn in this Thessalonian letter is that God has a plan to deliver his church in the midst of that. Jesus will come for his church and then the time of Jacob's trouble will begin. So there's two parts to the Lord's coming. The first is this. Jesus will come for his church. The second part is this. Seven years later at the close of the tribulation, Jesus will return to earth with his church and he will defeat his enemies and set up his kingdom. When I talk about Jesus coming for his church, I'm, not, I, we're, I'm talking about something that could happen at any moment. This is what the word of God teaches us. It could happen at any time. We're not waiting for signs. We're waiting for the Savior. The Savior. And a church that lives with this expect, expectation of Christ coming at any time will be a church that is vibrant. It will be hopeful. It will be busy about the work of the kingdom. It will be busy about the work of the kingdom. And it will be taking the attitude we will occupy until Christ comes. Working while waiting. Turning from idols to serve the living God. Until his son from heaven comes. Whom he raised from the dead. Jesus. The one who delivers us. From the wrath to come. And to that we say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm going to invite you to stand with me and I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that because of your word, we have no need to stumble around in the darkness. To look around and say, what's going on in this world? But Father, you've given us the word so that we would understand you and your holiness, that we might be prepared for your presence, and so that we might understand the time in which we live. Lord, we thank you that you want us informed. So, Father, we ask that, that as your word has spoken, been spoken to us this morning, that our lives would be changed, that we would be transformed. Lord, we pray that you'd produce, Lord, I pray that you'd produce right now in the heart of every person, faith. I can't make that. They can't make it. Lord, faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd give us a faith to believe you. A faith that trusts you. A faith that knows your nature and your character. A faith that is singular and gets about the labor of love and the work of faith and the steadfastness of hope. One that looks unto Christ. And so Jesus, this morning as we consider your word, I pray, Lord, that in our hearts we would turn from our idols. Father, forgive us. Forgive us. Lord, wash us clean by your blood. God, expose the things that we serve that are not of you. And Jesus, take your rightful place in our hearts and in our lives as Lord, your Lord and Savior. And so, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you serve the purpose of your Father who chose us before the foundations of the world were laid. You went to the cross. You died for our sin. Bored in your body. Crucified died, buried, and rose from the dead victorious. 
And Lord, this morning, we thank you for the gospel message that has power to save us. And we confess, Jesus, you are Lord. You are Lord. May we be filled with an expectancy with regards to your soon return. In Jesus' name, amen.